section fifteen of earth's enigmas this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by kate fallis earth's enigmas by sir charles g d roberts the eye of glooskap part one it was close upon high tide and the creek that wound in through the diked marshes was rapidly filling to the brim with the swirling cold yellow-gray waters of minas the sun but half risen yet lingered on the wooded crest of the gasparo hills while above hung a dappled sky of pink and pale amber and dove-color a yellow light streamed sharply down across the frost-whitened meadows the smouldering ruins of grand pre village and out upon the glittering expanse of minas basin the beams tinged brightly the cordage and half-furled sails of two ships that rode at anchor in the basin near the shore with a pitilessly revealing whiteness the rays descended on the mournful encampment at the creek's mouth where a throng of acadian peasants were getting ready to embark for exile late grew the year and stormy was the sea already had five ships sailed away with their sorrowful freight disappearing around the towering front of blomidon from the straining eyes of friends and kinsfolk left behind another ship would sail out with the next ebb and all was sad confusion and unwilling haste till the embarkation should be accomplished the ship's boats were loaded down with rude household stuff and boxes full of homespun linens and woollens children were crying with the cold and a few women were weeping silently but the partings which had succeeded each other at intervals throughout the last few weeks had dulled the edge of anguish and most of the acadians wore an air of heavy resignation the new england soldiers on guard gave what help they could but sullenly for they were weary of the misery that they had so long been forced to watch the people were huddled on a little patch of marsh within a curve of the dyke beyond the dyke there spread a stretch of reddish-brown salt flats covered with water only at the highest spring tides and now meagerly sprinkled with sharp-edged blades and tufts of the grey salt grasses the flats were soft between the bunches of the grass and a broad track was trampled into mire by the passing down of many feet from the dyke's edge to the boats in a work like this there are always a thousand unlooked-for delays and before half the embarkation was effected the tide had reached the full and paused and turned to ebb as the strip of shining red mud began to widen between the grasses and the water's edge the bustle and confusion increased sometimes a woman who had already stepped into the boat thinking that her people had preceded her would spring over the side into the shallow water and rush sobbing with anxious fear back to the encampment sometimes a child would lose sight of its father or mother in the press and lift its shrill voice in a wail of desolation which found piteous echo in every acadian heart lower and lower fell the tide the current was now thick and red with the mud which it was dragging from the flats to redeposit on some crescent shoal at the mouth of the canard or pisiquid over the dyke and down toward the waiting boats came an old man bent with years 
supported by his son and his son's wife a middle-aged couple the decrepit figure in its quaint acadian garb was one to be remembered old remy corveau was a man of means among the acadian peasants his feet were encased in high-top moccasins of vividly embroidered moose-hide and his legs in gaiters or mitasses of dark blue woolen homespun laced with strips of red cloth his coat was a long and heavy garment of homespun blanket dyed to a yellowish brown with many decoctions of a plant which the country folk now know as yallerweed a cap of coarse sealskin covered his head and was tied beneath his chin with a woolen scarf of dull red the old man clutched his stick in his mittened right hand muttering to himself and seemed but half aware of what was going on when he came to the edge of the wet red clay however he straightened himself and looked about him he gazed at the boats and at the anchored ships beyond a light of sudden intelligence flashed into his feeble eyes he turned half round and looked back upon the ruined village while his son and daughter paused respectfully hurry along there now exclaimed one of the guards impatiently and the acadian couple understanding the tone and gesture pulled at their father's arms to lead him into the boat the old man's eyes flamed wildly and crying je ne veux pas je ne veux pas he broke from them and struggled back toward the dike instantly his son overtook him picked him up in his arms and carried him now sobbing feebly down to the boat where he laid him on a pile of blankets as the laden craft moved slowly toward the ship the old man's complainings ceased when they went to hoist him over the ship's side they discovered that he was dead and now the very last boatload was well nigh ready to start the parish priest who was staying behind to sail with the next and final ship was bidding his sad farewells a young woman drew near the boat but hardly seemed to see the priest's kind face of greeting so anxiously was she fumbling in the depths of a small bag which she carried on her arm the bag was of yellow caribou skin worked by indian fingers and many-coloured designs of dyed porcupine quills what's the matter marie my child inquired the priest gently hast thou lost something more besides thy country and thy father's house as he spoke the girl whose name was marie beaugrand looked up with a sigh of relief and turned to him affectionately i have found it father voila she exclaimed holding up a gigantic amethyst of marvellous brilliancy pierrot gave it to me to keep for him you know she added timidly because of the bad luck that goes with it when a man has it this was no time to chide the girl for her belief in the superstition which he knew was connected with the wondrous jewel the priest merely smiled and said well well guard it carefully my little one and may the holy saints enable it to mend the fortunes of thee and thy pierrot farewell and god have thee ever in his keeping my dear child hardly were the words well past his lips when the girl gave a scream of dismay and sprang forward down the slippery red incline she had dropped the amethyst by some incomprehensible mischance the priest beheld the purple gleam as it flashed from between the girl's fingers 
her high cap of coarse undyed french linen fell away from her black locks as she stooped to grope passionately in the ooze which had swallowed up her treasure in a moment the comely picture of her dark blue sleeves grey petticoat and trim red stockings was sadly disfigured by the mud the girl's despair was piercing but the impatient guards who knew not what she had lost were on the point of taking her forcibly to the boat when colonel winslow who stood near by checked them peremptorily seeing the priest gird up his cassock and step forward to help the sobbing girl in her search colonel winslow questioned of the interpreter as to what the damsel had lost to cause such lament a toy a mere god your excellency said the shrewd interpreter giving winslow a title which he would not have employed had there been any one present of higher rank than the new england colonel a mere god of a purple stone but they do say it would be worth a thousand pounds if one had it in london these poor folk call it the witch stone because they say it brings bad luck to the man that has it the more learned sort smile at such a superstition and call the stone the star by reason of its surpassing beauty perot de barras star they call it now since that youth picked it up last spring on blomidon where it had once before been found and strangely lost again they say the youth gave the jewel to his betrothed yonder to keep for him if so she might ward off the evil fortune the new england colonel's high arched eyebrows went up into his forehead at this tale his round and ruddy face softened with sympathy for the poor girl's despair winslow was convinced of the wisdom and justice of the orders which he was carrying out so firmly but he wished the task of removing the acadians had been confided to any other hands than his this affair is more grievous to me he wrote to a friend about this time than any service i was ever employed in presently remarking that the girl's efforts were fruitless and the tide ebbing rapidly winslow ordered several of his soldiers down into the mud to assist her search veiling their reluctance the men obeyed and the ooze was explored to the very water's edge at length realizing that the departure could not safely be longer delayed winslow ordered the quest to cease as the girl turned back to the boat the colonel caught sight of the despair upon her face and reddening in the folds of his double chin he slipped some gold pieces into the muddy hand of the priest be good enough sir to give the damsel these he said stiffly tell her i will have the search continued if the stone is found she shall have it if any one steals it i will hang him as the priest leaning over the boatside slipped the pieces into the buckskin bag colonel winslow turned away and rather roughly ordered the bespattered soldiers back to camp to clean themselves after the priest had bid farewell to the still weeping marie and the little company about her he stood waiting to receive the other boat which was now returning from the ship he saw that something unexpected had taken place his old parishioner was lying back in the stern covered with a blanket while his son and daughter lamented over him with the unrestraint of children on the following day under the stern guard of the puritan soldiers 
there was a funeral in the little cemetery on the hillside and the frozen sods were heaped upon the last acadian grave of grand prix village remy corveau had chosen death rather than exile and what was the jewel whose loss had caused such grief to marie beaugrand for generations the great amethyst had sparkled in the front of blomidon visible at intervals in certain lights and from certain standpoints and again unseen for months or years together the indians called it the eye of glooskop and believed that to meddle with it at all would bring down swiftly the vengeance of the demigod fixed high on the steepest face of the cliff the gem had long defied the search of the most daring climbers it lurked probably under some overhanging brow of ancient rock as in a fit in inviolable setting at length some years before the date of the events i have been describing a french sailor fired by the far-off gleaming of the gem had succeeded in locating the spot of splendour alone with a coil of rope he made his way to the top of the ancient cape a few days later his bruised and lifeless body was found among the rocks below the height and taken for burial to the little hillside cemetery by the gaspero the fellow had evidently succeeded in finding the amethyst and dislodging it from its matrix for when next the elfin light gleamed forth it was seen to come from a point far down the cliff not more than a hundred feet above the tide here it had been found by perrault de Barats, who laughing to scorn the superstitious fears of his fellow villagers had brought it home in triumph it was his purpose to go at some convenient season to halifax and there sell the matchless crystal of whose value the priest had been able to give him some idea but that very spring ill-luck had crossed the threshold of perrault's cabin a threshold over which he was even then preparing to lead marie beaugrand as his bride two of his oxen died mysteriously his best cow slipped her calf his horse got a strain in the loins and his apple-blossoms were nipped by a frost which passed by his neighbour's trees thereupon heeding the words of an old micmac squaw who had said that the spell of the stone had no power upon a woman perrault had placed his treasure in marie's keeping till such time as it could be transformed into english gold and from that day the shadow of ill fate had seemed to pass from him until the edict of banishment came upon grand prix like a bolt out of a cloudless heaven from the ship on whose deck he awaited her coming perrault saw the apparently causeless accident which had befallen the gem and watched with dry lips and burning eyes the vain endeavours of the search his hands trembled and his heart was bitter against the girl for a few moments but as the boat drew near and he caught the misery and fathomless self-reproach on her averted face his anger melted away in pity he took marie's hand as she came over the bulwarks and whispered to her don't cry about it teacherie it would have brought us bad luck anywhere we went let's thank the holy saints it's gone as the ship forged slowly across the basin and came beneath the shadow of the frown of blomidon perrault pointed out first the perilous ledge to which he had climbed for the vanished star 
and then the tide-washed hollow under the cliff where they had picked up the body of the luckless sailor from st malo who knows marie continued pierrot if thou hadst not lost that evil stone thou mightst one day have seen me in such a case as that sailor came unto and then not because she was at all convinced by such reasoning but because her lover's voice was kind the girl looked up into pierrot's face and made shift to dry her tears part two late in december the last ship sailed away then the last roof-tree of grand prix village went down in ashes and winslow's lieutenant osgood with a sense of heavy duty done departed with his new england troops winslow himself had gone some weeks before for five years after the great exile the acadian lands lay deserted and the fogs that gathered morning by morning on the dark top of blomidon looked down on a waste where came and went no human footstep all the while the fated amethyst lay hidden as far as tradition tells beneath the red ooze and changing tides of the creek then settlers began to come in and the empty fields were taken up by men of english speech once more a village arose on grand prix and cider presses creaked on the hills of gaspereau of the acadians to keep their memory green on the meadows they had captured from the sea there remained the interminable lines of mighty dyke the old apple orchards and the windbreaks of tall poplars and some gaping cellars full of ruins wherein the newcomers dug persistently for treasure by and by certain of the settlers who occupied the higher grounds back of the village began to talk of a star which they had seen gleaming with a strange violet radiance from a patch of unreclaimed salt marsh by the mouth of the creek in early evening only could the elfin light be discerned and then it was visible to none but those who stood upon the heights soon from no one knew where came tales of the eye of glooskop and the witch's stone and l'etoile des perrots des bras and the death of the sailor of st malo and the losing of the gem on the day the ship sailed forth of the value of the amethyst the most fabulous stories went abroad and for a season the good wives of the settlers had but a sorry time of it cleansing their husbands garments from a daily defilement of mud while the vain search was going on an old scotchman shrewder than his fellows was taking out his title deeds to the whole expanse of salt flats which covered perhaps a score of acres having quietly made his position secure at halifax dugald mcintyre came down on his fellow villagers with a firm celerity and the digging and the defiling of garments came suddenly to an end by grand prix creek soon a line of new dyke encompassed the flats the spring tides swept no more across those sharp grasses which had bent beneath the unreturning feet of the acadians and the prudent scot found himself the richer by twenty acres of exhaustlessly fertile meadow worth a hundred dollars an acre any day moreover he felt that he had the amethyst could he not see it almost any evening towards sundown by merely climbing the hillside back of his snug homestead how divinely it gleamed with long pale steady rays 
just inside the lines of circumvallation which he had so cunningly drawn about it in its low lurking place beside the hubbub of the recurring ebb and flow it seemed to watch like an unwinking eye for the coming of curious and baleful fates but it never fell to the scotchman's fortune to behold his treasure close at hand to the hilltop he had to go whenever he would gloat upon its beauty to the most diligent and tireless searching of every inch of the marsh's surface it refused to yield up its implacably virginal lustre sometimes though rarely it was visible as the moon drew near her setting and then it would glitter whitely and malignantly like a frosty spear-point at last the settlers began to whisper that the star was not in the marsh at all but that dougald mcintyre after the fashion of these canny folk had o'erreached himself and run the lines of dyke right over it that it could continue to shine under such discouraging circumstances the settlement by this time scorned to doubt to the eye of glooskap the people were ready to attribute any powers divine or devilish whether the degree of possession to which dougald mcintyre had attained could be considered to constitute a legal ownership of the jewel or not is a question for lawyers not the mere teller of a plain tale the mere digger among the facts of a perishing history suffice it to say that the finger of ill fortune soon designated dougald mcintyre as the man whose claim to the eye was acknowledged by the fates from the time of the completion of the new dyke dated the scotchman's troubles his cattle one year his crops another seemed to find the season set against them dougald's prudence watchfulness and untiring industry minimized every stroke nevertheless things went steadily to the worse it was destiny versus dougald mcintyre and with true scottish determination dougald braced himself to the contest he made a brave fight but wherever there was a doubtful point at issue the court invisible ruled inexorably and without a scruple against the possessor of the eye of glooskap when he was harvesting his first crop of hay off the new dyke and a fine crop it seemed likely to be the rains set in with a persistence that at length reduced the windrows to a condition of flavourless grey straw dougald mcintyre set his jaws grimly together took good hay from another meadow to mix with the ruined crop and by a discreet construction of his bundles succeeded in selling the whole lot at a good price to his most gracious majesty's government at halifax this bold stroke seemed to daunt the fates for a time and while they were recovering from their confusion affairs went bravely with dougald when haying season came round again the weather kept favourable and the hay was all harvested in perfect shape dougald was much too prudent to boast but in his innermost heart he indulged a smile of triumph that night his barns and outbuildings 
were burned to the ground and two fine horses with them and his house was saved hardly this was too much even for him refusing to play longer a losing game he sold the new marsh at some sacrifice to a settler who laughed at superstition this sceptical philosopher however proved open to conviction a twelvemonth later he was ready almost to give the land away and the eye of glooskap with it for a mere song the rich and smiling tract carrying a heavy crop just ready for the scythe was purchased by a young new englander with an admirable instinct for business this young man went to halifax and mortgaged the land and crop to their full value and with the cash he left to seek his fortune thus the eye of glooskap and the marsh with it came into the possession of a widow of great wealth on whom the spell it seemed was of none effect her heirs were in england and it came to pass in the course of a generation that grand prix knew not the owners of the faded marsh and could not tell what troubles if any were falling upon the possessors of the star nevertheless the star kept up its gleaming a steady eye of violet under the sunsets a ray of icy pallor when the large moon neared her setting and at length it was discovered that the enchanted jewel had yet other periods of manifestation belated wayfarers on stormy december nights had caught the unearthly eye-beam when no other light could be seen in earth or sky when this took place the tide was always near about the full and beating hoarsely all along the outer dikes then would be heard between the pauses of the wind the rattle of oars at the mouth of the creek and the creaking of ships cordage and anon the sound of children crying with the cold if the voices came from the spot where the new marsh lay unseen and the star shone coldly watchful they were for the most part in a tongue which the wayfarers could not understand but now and again some said there were orders spoken in english and then the clank of arms and the tramp of marching feet of course these things were held in question by many of the settlers but there were none so hardy as to suffer themselves to be caught upon the new marsh after nightfall the eye of glooskap discerned a supernatural terror in many a heart that claimed renown for courage part three a hundred years had rolled down the hillsides of the gaspereau and out across the minus tides into the fogs and hollows of the past and still the patch of diked land at the creek's mouth was lit by the unsearchable lustre of the eye of glooskap as for the various distinguished scientists who undertook to unravel the mystery either much study had made them blind or the lights were unpropitious for not one of them ever attained to a vision of the violet gleam they went away with laughter on their lips one spring there came to grand prix a young englishman named desbras a long-limbed ample-chested youth with whitish hair and ruddy skin and clear straightforward blue eyes desbras was resolved to learn farming in a new country so he bought an old farm on the uplands with an exhausted orchard and was for a time surprised at the infertility of the soil 
gradually he made himself master of the situation and of some more desirable acres and also incidentally it seemed of the affections of a maiden who lived not far from grand prix Ducald McIntyre had prospered again when the eye of Glooskap no longer looked malignantly on his fortunes, and to his descendants he had left one of the finest properties within view of Blomidon. It was Jesse McIntyre, his great-grandchild, who had captured the heart of young Debra. One rosy September afternoon, as Jesse stood in the porch where the wild grapes clustered half-ripe, the young Englishman came swinging his long legs up the slope, sprang over the fence between the apple-trees, and caught the maiden gleefully in his arms. "'Congratulate me, Mistress McIntyre,' he cried, as the girl pushed him away in mock disapproval. "'I have just made a bargain, a famous bargain, a thing I never did before in my life.' "'Good boy,' replied Jessie, standing a tiptoe to pat the pale brush of her lover's well-cropped hair. "'Good boy, we'll make a blue nose of you yet. And what is this famous bargain, may I ask?' why i've just bought what so many of your fellow-countrymen call the new marsh answered debra i have got it for twenty dollars an acre and it's worth a hundred any day i've got the deed and the thing's an accomplished fact jessie looked grave and removed herself from her lover's embrace in order to lend impressiveness to her words oh jack jack she said you don't know what you've done you have become a man of destiny which i don't believe you want to be at all you've bought the star you have made yourself the master of the witch's stone you have summoned the eye of glooskap to keep watch upon you critically in fact it would take a long time to tell you all you have done but one thing more you must do you must get rid of that famous bargain of yours without delay i'm not superstitious jack but truly in this case i am disturbed bad luck horrid bad luck has always befallen any man owning that piece of marsh for the marsh contains the witch's stone and a spell is on the man that possesses that fatal jewel jack de Bras laughed and recaptured the maiden all right said he if a man mustn't possess it i shall give it away to a woman how will that suit you my lady jesse looked dubious but said anything would be better than for him to keep it himself whereupon the young man continued put on your hat then and come down into the village with me and i will forthwith transfer the property with all appurtenances thereof to jesse mcintyre spinster of the parish of grand pre county of king's province of nova scotia in her majesty's dominion of canada and the eye of glooskap will find something better to keep watch upon than me to this proposal miss jessie being in the main a very level-headed young lady in spite of her little superstitions assented without demur and the two proceeded to the village on the way thither and back debra learned all the history of the star on the marsh as i have endeavoured to unfold it in the preceding pages as it happened however there was no mention of pierrot desbarat's surname in jessie's account marie beaugrand she spoke of but marie's fiance the last finder of the amethyst she simply called pierrot but have you yourself ever seen the sinister glory you describe asked debra as they neared the mcintyre home 
jesse's story had interested him keenly he was charmed with the tale as constituting at least a notable bit of folklore of course i've seen it replied jesse almost petulantly i dare say i can show it to you now let us go to the top of the hill yonder where that old poplar stands up all by itself that tree is a relic of the acadians and the eye watches it i fancy when it has nothing better to look at when the lovers reached the hilltop and paused beside the ancient and decaying poplar the sun had just gone down behind north mountain and a sombre splendour flooded the giant brow of blomidon the girl pointed toward the mouth of the creek desbra could not restrain a cry of astonishment from just inside the dyke in a deep belt of olive shadow came a pale fine violet ray unwavering and inexplicable presently he remarked that is a fine gem of yours my dear and if i owned such a treasure i shouldn't leave it lying around in that careless fashion who knows what might happen to it away down there on the new marsh what if a gull now should come along and swallow it to help him grind his fish bones don't be silly jack said the girl her eyes dilating as she watched the mystic beam you know you don't half like the look of it yourself it makes you feel uncanny and you're just talking nonsense to make believe you don't think there is anything queer about it quite the contrary i assure you o oh, mistress of the witch stone o oh, cynosure of the eye of glooskop answered debra i am indeed so much impressed that i was taking pains to remind the powers of the transfer i have just effected i desire to hide me from the eye of glooskop by taking refuge behind a certain little spinster's petticoats there was a long silence while debra kept gazing on the mystic gleam as if fascinated at last jessie made a move as if she thought it time to return to the house whereupon the young man waking out of his fit of abstraction said slowly do you know it seems to me now as if you had been telling me an old story i feel as if you had merely recalled to my memory incidents which i had long forgotten i remember it all now with much that i think you did not tell me looking at that strange point of light i have seen did you tell me anything of an old man dying in a boat and being brought to shore just as marie was leaving for the ship that is a scene that stands out upon my memory sharply now and did you say anything about an old priest i saw him leaning over the side of the boat and slipping something into marie's sack no said jessie i didn't tell you any of that though it all happened as you say let us go home jack it frightens me terribly oh i wish you hadn't bought that marsh and she clung trembling to the young man's arm but what can it mean persisted desbra as they descended the hill why should i think that i was there when it all happened that it all happened to me in fact my grandmother was of french blood perhaps acadian blood for my grandfather married her in the west indies after the exile the acadians you say were scattered all over the face of the new world can there be in my veins any of the blood of that unhappy people jessie stopped short and looked up at her lover's face 
why your name she cried sounds as if it might have been french once my grandfather's name was manners sutton responded de musing my father had to take my grandfather's name to inherit some property in martinique i of course pronounce my name in english fashion but it is spelled just as my father's was d e s b r a as the young englishman gave his name its french accent and pronunciation jessie uttered a little cry of intelligence and wonder she looked at her lover a moment in silence and then said very slowly very deliberately pausing for every word to tell the name of marie's lover the young man who found the witch's stone was pierrot desbarat d e s b a r a t s you are none other jack than the great-grandson of marie and perrault truly said desbra when i come to think of it the name was spelled that way once upon a time well you shall not be a man of destiny jack exclaimed the girl i won't have it but as for me that is another matter we shall see if the eye of glooskap has any malign influence over me part four early in december having just returned to grand pre from their wedding journey jack de and his wife were standing one evening in a window that looked out across the marshes and the basin it was a wild night a terrific wind had come up with the tide and the waves raged in thunderously all along the minus dikes there was nothing visible without so thick was the loud darkness of the storm but the young englishman had suggested that they should look to see if the star would shine a welcome to their homecoming it is my star remember jack said his wife and it will be guilty of no such irregularity as showing itself on a night like this you forget my lady was the reply that the star is now mine the marsh has the star and my lady has the marsh but i have my lady and so possess all oh jack cried the girl with a shudder there it is i am sure something will happen let us sell the marsh to-morrow dear for now that i belong to you i can no longer protect you from the spell i had forgotten that very well said Debras lightly if you say so we'll sell to-morrow as the two stood locked in each other's arms and straining their eyes into the blackness the violet ray gathered intensity and almost seemed to reveal by fits the raving turmoil of the rapidly mounting tide in a few moments desbra became absorbed as it were in a sort of waking dream his frank merry almost boyish countenance took on a new expression and his eyes assumed the strange far-focused steadfastness of the seers his wife watched with a growing awe which she could not shake off the change in her husband's demeanour and the firelight in the cheerful room died away unnoticed at last the girl could bear no longer the ghostly silence and that strange look in her husband's face what do you see jack she cried what do you see oh how terribly it shines 
when Debra replied she hardly recognized his voice i see many ships said he slowly and as if he heard not the sound of his own words they sail in past blomidon they steer for the mouths of the canard and gaspero some are already close at hand the strange light of the eye of glooskap is on the sails of all from somewhere i hear voices singing nos bones gens raviandrond the sound of it comes beating on the wind hark how it swells over the marshes i do not hear anything jack dear except those terrible gusts that cry past the corners of the house said jessie tremulously how light it grows upon the new marsh now continued her husband in the same still voice the eye shines everywhere i hear no more the children crying with the cold but on the marsh i see an old man standing he is waiting for the ships he waves a stick exultantly to welcome them i know him it is old remy corveau they told me he died and was buried when the ships sailed away from grand prix there comes a great ship heading for long island shoal cannot the captain see how the waves break furiously before him no ship will live a moment that strikes the shoal to-night she strikes god have no she sails straight through the breakers and not three feet of water on the shoal two ships have reached the creek continued Debra, speaking more rapidly how the violet light shines through their sails how crowded the decks are all the faces are turned toward shore with laughter and with streaming eyes and hands outstretched to the fields of grand prix i know the faces there is evangeline and there is jacques lemay and why don't they drop anchor they will ground if they come any nearer shore and in this sea merciful heaven they are on the dikes they strike and the dike goes down before them the great white waves throng in behind them the marsh is buried and the light goes out the young man started back and put his hand to his eyes as if awaking from a dream he caught the sound of his wife's sobbing and throwing both arms about her he stooped to kiss her hair which gleamed in the dark what's the matter darling he whispered anxiously and what has become of our fire oh jack you have frightened me so replied the girl you've been dreaming or in a trance and seeing dreadful things that i could not see at all i could see nothing but that hateful eye which has been shining as if all the fires of hell were in it come away we will sell the marsh to-morrow at any price but dear said debra the star has gone out there's not a sign of it to be seen all outside is black as egypt look reluctantly the girl turned toward the window she gave a little cry that's just what you said a minute ago she exclaimed you said the light goes out and then you came to yourself i believe the dike is washed away well said debra we'll see to-morrow 
and they drew the curtains and lit the lamps and stirred the fire to a blaze and between the shriekings of the wind they heard the roar of the breakers trampling the low and naked coast when morning broke over the gaspereau hills and men looked out of their windows every vestige of the dyke that had enclosed the new marsh was gone the site of the marsh was much eaten away and a bank of sand was piled at the other side of the creek near the mouth in such a way as to divert the channel many feet from its old course thereafter the tides foamed in and out with daily and nightly clamour across the spot where the star on the marsh had gleamed and men made no new effort to reclaim the ruined acres the end end of the eye of gluskop end of earth's enigmas by sir charles g d roberts